Hammond. John Hammond sat down heavily in the damp earth on the hillside and tried to catch his breath. Dear God, it was hot, he thought. Hot and humid. He felt as if he was breathing through a sponge. He looked down at the stream bed, now forty feet below. It seemed like hours since he had left the trickling water and began to climb the hill. His ankle was now swollen and dark purple. He couldn't put any weight on it at all. He was forced to hop up the hill on his other leg, which now burned with pain from the exertion. And he was thirsty. Before leaving the stream behind, he had drunk from it, even though he knew this was unwise. Now he felt dizzy, and the world sometimes swirled around him. He was having trouble with his balance. But he knew he had to climb the hill and get back to the path above. Hammond thought he had heard footsteps on the path several times during the previous hour, and each time he had shouted for help. But somehow his voice hadn't carried far enough, and he hadn't been rescued. And so, as the afternoon wore on, he began to realise that he would have to climb the hillside, injured leg or not. And that was what he was doing now. Those damn kids. Hammond shook his head, trying to clear it. He had been climbing for more than an hour, and had only gone only a third of the distance up the hill. And he was tired, panting like an old dog. His leg throbbed. He was dizzy. Of course he knew he was in no danger. He was almost within sight of his bungalow, for God's sake. But he had to admit he was tired. Sitting on the hillside, he found he didn't really want to move any more. And why shouldn't he be tired, he thought. He was sixty-six years old. That was no age to be climbing around hillsides, even though Hammond was at the peak condition for the man of his age. Personally, he expected to live to be a hundred. It was just a matter of taking care of yourself, of taking care of things as they came up. Certainly he had plenty of reasons to live. Other parks to build, other wonders to create. He heard squeaking, then a chittering sound. Some kind of small bird hopping in the undergrowth. He'd been hearing small animals all afternoon. There were all kinds of things out here. Rats, possums, snakes. The squeaking got louder. And small bits of earth rolled down the hillside past him. Something was coming. Then he saw a dark green animal hopping down the hillside toward him. And another, and another. Compies, he thought with a chill. Scavengers. The compies didn't look dangerous. They were about as big as chickens, and they moved up and down with little nervous jerks like chickens. But he knew they were poisonous. Their bites had a slow-acting poison they used to kill crippled animals. Crippled animals, he thought, frowning. The first of the compies perched on the hillside stared at him. It stayed about five feet away, beyond his reach, and just watched him. Others came down soon after and they stood in a row, watching. They hopped up and down and chittering and waving their little clawed hands. Shoo! Get out! he said and threw a rock. The compies backed away, but only a foot or two. They weren't afraid. They seemed to know he couldn't hurt them. Angrily, Hammond tore a branch from the tree and swat at them with it. The compies dodged and nipped at the leaves, squeaking happily. They seemed to think he was playing a game. He thought again about the poison. He remembered that one of the animal handlers had been bitten by a compie in a cage. The handler had said the poison was like a narcotic, peaceful, dreamy. No pain. You just wanted to go to sleep. The hell with that, he thought. Hammond picked up a rock, aimed carefully and threw it, striking one compie flat in the chest. The little animal shrieked in alarm as it was knocked backwards and rolled over its tail. The other animals immediately backed away. 
better. Hammond turned away and started to climb the hill once more. Holding branches in both hands, he hopped on his left leg, feeling the ache in his thigh. He had not gone more than ten feet when one of the compies jumped onto his back. He flung his arms wildly, knocking the animal away, but lost his balance and slid back down the hillside. As he came to a stop, a second compy sprang forward and took a tiny nip from his hand. He looked with horror, seeing the blood flow over his fingers. He turned and began to scramble up the hillside again. Another compy lumped onto his shoulder and he felt a brief pain as it bit the back of his neck. He shrieked and smacked the animal away. He turned to face the animals, breathing hard, and they stood all around him, hopping up and down and cocking their heads, watching him. From the bite on his neck, he felt a warmth flow through his shoulders down his spine. Laying on his back on the hillside, he began to feel strangely relaxed, detached from himself. But he had realised that nothing was wrong. No error had been made. Malcolm was quite incorrect in his analysis. Hammond lay very still, as still as a child in its crib, and he felt wonderfully peaceful. When the next compy came up and bit his ankle, he made only a half-hearted effort to kick it away. The little animal edged closer. Soon they were chattering all around him like excited birds. He raised his head as another compy jumped onto his chest. The animal surprisingly light and delicate. Hammond felt only a slight pain, very slight as the compie bent to chew his neck. The Beach Chasing the dinosaurs following the curves and slopes of concrete, Grant suddenly burst out through a cavernous opening and found himself standing on the beach, looking at the Pacific Ocean. All around him, the young velociraptors were scampering and kicking in the sand. But one by one, the animals moved back into the shade of the palm trees at the edge of the mangrove swamp and they stood, lined up in the peculiar fashion, watching the ocean. They stared fixedly to the south. I don't get it, Gennaro said. I don't either, Grant said. Except that they clearly don't like the sun. It wasn't very sunny on the beach, a light mist blew, and the ocean was hazy. But why had they suddenly left the nest? What had brought the entire colony to the beach? Gennaro flipped through the dial on his watch and looked at the way the animals were standing. Northeast, southwest, same as before. Behind the beach, deeper in the woods, they heard the hum of an electric fence. At least we know how they get out the fence, Ali said. Then they heard a throb of marine diesels, and through the mist they saw a ship appearing in the south. A large freighter. It slowly moved north. So that's why they come out, Gennaro said. Grant nodded. They must have heard it coming. As the freighter passed, all the animals watched it standing silent except for the occasional chirp and squeak. Grant was struck by the coordination of the behaviour, the way they moved and acted as a group. But perhaps it was not really so mysterious. In his mind, he reviewed the sequence of events that had begun in the cave. First, the infants had been agitated. Then the adults had noticed, and finally all the animals had stampeded to the beach. The sequence seemed to imply that the younger animals, with keener hearing, had detected the boat first. Then the adults had led the troop out onto the beach, and as Grant looked, he saw that the adults were in charge now. There was a clear spatial organisation along the beach, and as the animals settled down, it was not loose and shifting the way it had been inside. Rather, it was quite regular, almost regimented. The adults had spaced every ten yards or so, each adult surrounded by a cluster of infants, the juveniles were positioned between and slightly ahead of the adults. 
but Grant also saw that all the adults were not equal. There was a female with a distinctive stripe along her head, and she was in the very centre of the group as it ranged along the beach. That same female had stayed in the centre of the nesting area too. He guessed that, like certain monkey troops, the raptors were organised around a matriarchal pecking order, and that this striped animal was the alpha female of the colony. The males, he saw, was arranged defensively at the perimeter of the group. But, unlike monkeys, which were loosely and flexibly organised, the dinosaurs settled into a, a rigid arrangement, almost a military formation, it seemed. Then, too, was the oddity of the northeast-southwest spatial orientation. That was beyond Grant. But in another sense, he was not surprised. Paleontologists had been digging up bones for so long that they had forgotten how little information could be gleaned from a skeleton. Bones might tell you something about a gross appearance of an animal in its height and weight. They might tell you something about the muscles attached and therefore something about the crude behaviour of the animal during its life. They might give you clues to a few diseases that affected bone. But a skeleton was a poor thing, really, from which to try and deduce the total behaviour of an organism. Since bones were all that paleontologists had, bones were what they used. Like other paleontologists, Grant had become very expert at working with bones, and somewhere along the way he had started to forget the unprovable possibilities that the dinosaurs might be truly different animals, that they might possess behaviour and social life organised along the lines that were utterly mysterious to their later mammalian descendants, that since the dinosaurs were fundamentally birds. Oh my God, Grant said. He stared at the raptors, ranged along the beach in a rigid formation, silently watching the boat and he finally understood what he was looking at. Those animals, Gennaro said, shaking his head. They sure are desperate to escape from here. No, Grant said. They don't want to escape at all. They don't? No, Grant said. They want to migrate. Approaching Dark Migrating? Ellie said. That's fantastic. Yes. Grant said. He was grinning. Ellie said, oh, Where do you suppose they want to go? I don't know, Grant said. And then the big helicopters burst through the fog, thundering and wheeling over the landscape, their underbellies heavy with ornament. The raptors scattered in alarm as one of the helicopters circled back, following the line of the surf, and then moved in to land on the beach. A door was flung open and a soldier in olive uniforms came running towards them. Grant heard the rapid bubble of voices in Spanish and saw that Muldoon was already aboard with the kids. One of the soldiers said in English, Please will you come with us? Please, there is no time here. Grant looked back at the beach where the raptors had been, but they were all gone. All the animals had vanished. It was as if they had never existed. The soldiers were tugging at him, and he allowed himself to be led beneath the thumping blades and climbed up through a big door. Muldoon leaned over the shoulder in Grant's ear. They want us out of here now. They're going to do it now. The soldiers pushed Grandinelli and Gennaro into seats and helped them to clip into the harnesses. Tim and Lex waved at him and he suddenly saw how young they were and how exhausted. Lex was yawning, leaning against her brother's shoulder. An officer came toward Grand and shouted, Senor, are you in charge? No, Grand said. I'm not in charge. Who is in charge, please? I don't know. The officer then went to Gennaro and asked the same question. Are you in charge? No, Gennaro said. The officer looked at Ellie, but said nothing to her. 
The door was left open as the helicopter lifted away from the beach, and Grant leaned out to see if he could catch a last look at the raptors. But then the helicopter was above the palm trees, moving north over the island. Grant leaned to Muldoon and shouted, What about the others? Muldoon shouted, They've already taken off Harding and some workmen. Hammond had an accident, found him on the hillside near his bungalow, must have fallen. Is he all right? Grant said. No, Comby's got him. What about Malcolm? Grant said. Muldoon shook his head. Grant was too tired to feel much of anything. He turned away and looked back at the door. It was getting dark now, and in the fading light he could barely see the little Rex with bloody jaws crouched over a hadrosaur by the edge of the lagoon and looking up at the helicopter roaring as it passed by. Somewhere behind them they heard explosions and then ahead they saw another helicopter willing through the mist over the visitor centre and a moment later the building burst in a bright orange fireball and Lex began to cry and Ellie put her arm around her and tried to get her not to look. Grant was staring down at the ground, and he had a last glimpse of the hypsilophodonts leaping gracefully as gazelles, moments before another explosion flared bright beneath them. Their helicopter gained altitude, and then moved fast out over the ocean. Grant sat back in his seat. He thought of the dinosaurs standing on the beach, and he wondered where they would migrate to if they could, and he realised he would never know. And he felt sad and relieved at the same moment. The officer came forward again, bending close to his face. Are you in charge? No, Grant said. Please, senor, who is in charge? Nobody, Grant said. The helicopter gained speed as it headed towards the mainland. It was cold now, and the soldiers muscled the door closed. As they did, Grant looked back at once more and saw the island against a deep purple sky and sea, cloaked in a deep mist that blurred a white-hot explosion that burst rapidly one after another, until it seemed the entire island was glowing, a diminishing bright spot in a darkening night. Epilogue San Jose Days went by. The government was polite and put them up in a nice hotel in San Jose. They were free to come and go and call whoever they wished. But they were not permitted to leave the country, each day a young man from the American Embassy came to visit them, to ask if they needed anything, and to explain that Washington was doing everything they could to hasten their departure. But the plain fact was that many people had died in a territorial possession of Costa Rica. The plain fact was that an ecological disaster had been narrowly averted. The government of Costa Rica had felt they had been misled and deceived by John Hammond and his plans for the island, under the circumstances, the government was not disposed to release survivors in their hurry. They did not even permit the burial of Hammond, Ori and Malcolm. They simply waited. Each day, it seemed to Grant, he was taken to another government office, where he was questioned by another courteous, intelligent government officer. They made him go over his story again and again, how Grant had met John Hammond, what Grant knew of the project, how Grant had received the facts from New York why Grant had gone to the island, and what had happened at the island. The same details again and again, day after day, the same story. For a long time, Grant thought they must believe he was lying to them, and that there was something they wanted him to tell, although he could not imagine what it was. Yet in some odd way, they seemed to be waiting. Finally, he was sitting around the swimming pool of the hotel one afternoon, watching Tim and Lex splash, when an American in car keys walked up. 
When you've never met, the American said, My name is Marty Gutierrez. I'm a researcher here at the Corrado Station. Grunt said, You were the one who found the, the original specimen of the Procumsognophus? That's right, yes. Gutierrez sat next to him. You must be eager to go home. Yes, Grant said. I have only a few days left to dig before the winter sets in. In Montana, you know, the first snow usually comes in August. Gutierrez said, Is that why the Hammond Foundation supported northern digs? Because the intact genetic material from dinosaurs is more likely to be recovered from cold climates? That's what I presume, yes. Gutierrez nodded. He was a clever man, Mr. Hammond. Grant said nothing. Gutierrez sat back in a pool chair. The authorities won't tell you, Gutierrez said finally, because they are afraid, and perhaps also resentful of you, for what you have done. But something very peculiar is happening in the rural regions. A binding of babies? No, thankfully they're to stop, but something else. This spring, in the uh, Ismaloya section, which is to the north, some unknown animals aid the crops in a very peculiar manner. They moved each day in a straight line, almost as straight as an arrow, from the coast, into the mountains, into the jungle. Grant sat upright. Like a migration, Gutierrez said. Wouldn't you say? What crops? Grant said. Well, it was odd. They would only eat agama beans and soyans, sometimes chickens. Grant said, foods rich in lysine. What happens to these animals? Presumably, Gutierrez said. They entered the jungles. In any case, they have not been found. Of course, it it would be difficult to search for them in the jungle. A search party could spend years in the Ismailian mountains with nothing to show for it. And we are being kept here because... Gutierrez shrugged. The government is worried. Perhaps there are more animals, more, more trouble. They are feeling cautious. Do you think there are more animals? Grant said. I can't say, can you? No, Grant said, I can't say. But you suspect? Grant nodded. Possibly there are, yes. I agree. Gutierrez pushed up from his chair. He waved to Tim and Lex playing in the pool. Probably they will send the children home, he said. There is no reason not to do that. He put on his sunglasses. Enjoy your stay with us, Dr. Grant. It is a lovely country here. Grant said, You're telling us we're not going anywhere? None of us are going anywhere, Dr. Grant, Gutierrez said, smiling. And then he turned and walked back toward the entrance of the hotel.